All right. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 21. As you know, if you attend here regularly, last week we finished a long series through the Gospel of Matthew. We went verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be extending that series, which was titled Kingdom Come, for the next couple of weeks. And then beginning May 22nd, we're going to start a summer series called We Believe, Reaffirming Our Core Beliefs Through the Ancient Creeds. I'm very much looking forward to that as we examine the core and foundational truths of faith throughout this summer. But until then, I want us to continue on the theme of resurrection. We're going to be, um, we're going to try to connect other accounts to fill in gaps to get a whole picture of what is recorded between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus from the gospel and Acts. So we'll be doing that this morning, next week, and the following. Last week the sermon was, Live in Light of Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus does something, always. It impacts the world, it impacts the individual, one way or the other, whether it's indifference or worship. And so we're going to continue that today as we look at living in light of resurrection and specifically restoration. The text is John 21, verses 1 through 19. It's a wonderful account of Jesus with his disciples after he is raised. And so let's read it and work through it. You can go ahead and stand and follow along as I read, beginning with verse 1 of John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is good. We're blessed, Lord, that we can have it, look at it, and know you through it. We pray for your help this morning. Help us not just to see these words, not just to read them, but to believe and to embrace who you are and what you've accomplished. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, the text begins with, after this. We don't know exactly when this is in the time frame between Jesus being raised and Jesus ascending, but it is before the Great Commission. We know from the text, Peter's actually surprised, shocked to see Jesus. These disciples have traveled. It's about... 80 to 90 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee, and that would take probably four or five days if they were walking. But Jesus isn't traveling with them here. We don't know what is happening with Jesus during these days. We don't know if before he left them the second time he appeared to them, if he had said, I'll see you in a few days. We don't know. We do know this takes place after Jesus shows Thomas his hands and feet, after he has him touch and put his finger in his hands and his side. And it says that he revealed himself again to these disciples. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And this is how he did it. And it lists seven of the disciples. It says that those seven were together. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, the, and, and two other, others of his disciples. Now, all seven of them were likely from Galilee. It makes sense that the others may have gone back to their lives, at least momentarily. 
Matthew also is from this region, but he wasn't a fisherman, and so unless he's one of the two that's not named, he's not there. Verse 3 tells us, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they say, we're going to go with you. And so they go out on a boat. That's possible, maybe probable, that Peter here is saying, it's time to get back to work. Not necessarily a picture of being on mission, but I would ask you, what would you do? You have walked with Jesus, the Lord, for three years, and then you saw him slaughtered. And now you've seen two times that he was raised, but we know they're doubting. We know still ahead, even after today's text, we know there's still doubts. So what would you do? Where is Jesus? We don't know from the text. We don't know from any of the Gospels exactly where he is. There are a few accounts of them seeing Jesus between the time that he's raised and the time he's ascended, but there's weeks there. And so what would you do? They don't necessarily know what to do. They've seen him raised, but there's still doubt. The Great Commission is coming. It's then that Jesus will, uh, in a sense, say to them, you're not going back to your old lives anymore. And then, of course, his ascension, where they are specifically sent as missionaries, you will be my witnesses. And so they go back to what they knew, their fishing. Verse 4 continues. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, probably they didn't recognize him because it was just breaking day. Light is just coming. And so the distance and then the dawn would make it hard to recognize a a face and see who it was. Maybe there is a mist in the morning, but they don't know it's him. But Jesus is there for them. He knew it was them. And he had come to see them. He had come to be with these disciples. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. I love this. This is so good. With compassion, Jesus calls to them, Children. Now, I realized as I was studying this this week how I, um, I just kind of imagine things as I'm reading the text sometimes. And so I've always imagined that as like a calm children. You know, that's how Jesus would probably say it, children. They're 100 yards away, okay? So if you're on the end of a football field and I'm on the other end and I'm like, children, do you have any fish? <laughs> you're not going to hear me, right? So he's tenderly, lovingly, yelling out to them probably, right? It's a hundred yards. So he's calling out to them and they're calling back, no, do you have any fish? 
It must have been hard to hear, honestly, right? They have been laboring all night long. That's what it says in verse 3. But that night they caught nothing. They've been fishing all night long and nothing. And this guy's standing. They don't know who it is. This guy's just standing on the shore. Hey, you guys get anything? No. (laughs) There's got to be some, at least a bummer or a little irritated in answering. No. So Jesus tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat and they will find some. Now, Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, I'm a really humble, meek, modest, kind, patient person. Maybe you're thinking about yourself that way. And you would think if someone that you didn't know who they were came to the shore and questioned you about your profession that you had been doing all night long with zero success, that you would very joyfully say, no, no. There has to be some like irritation inside, and yet this time, this time, they don't respond the way that they did the last time. Remember the last time, it's like, we've tried that, but at your request, we'll put them on the other side. We'll put the net on the other side. They don't do that this time. They, they just do it. They don't know who he is. And it says, now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Remember Jesus said some? Put it on the other side and you'll find some. And now it's just they're overloaded with fish. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful picture of his compassion and love. But it gets so much better. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord Now, that disciple that Jesus loved is John. And John says to Peter, it is the Lord. John knows at this point that it is Jesus. And says to him, it's him. And Peter grabs his outer garment and throws himself into the sea. I love this. Now, let's think about this. If you last saw Jesus showing Thomas his wounds, and then he goes away, and you say, let's go fishing. Go, we're going to go back to this quiet life we had. There might be a, maybe we're not going to see him again. They're human You've got to remember, these are humans. But as soon as he realizes it's Jesus, he throws himself into the sea. He jumps in. I love it. I love this picture of Peter. Verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. So the others come in the boat, dragging in the net full of fish. They're not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Okay, that's not terribly far. If you're in the boat, okay, a hundred 
yards. Peter throws himself into the sea. You think about that, okay? An Olympic swimming pool is 164 feet. So they're roughly two lengths of an Olympic pool away. And this guy pulls a Michael Phelps to the shore to get to Jesus. It's a football field. Now, I'll be honest, maybe some of you are like, big deal. I'm not a great swimmer. And so for me, that seems like a big, big deal with waves and whatnot, right? I mean, that seems like a big deal to me. And it's wonderful. And I want us to imagine what Peter is going through. He had denied Jesus three times. And the look of Jesus after his third denial that Luke tells us, he turned and looked at Peter. It must have been seared into his mind, and he can't shake it. Those denials must be eating him up, killing him inside. Jesus is far more forgiving than we are of ourselves. And he needs to get to Jesus. He needs to be with Jesus. And he throws himself into the sea and he swims as quickly as he can to get to the shore and to get to his friend. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Isn't that awesome? Jesus didn't need the fish. Like, he didn't need them to throw the net on the other side. He already has fish. He already has bread. Already prepared. He didn't need them to get the fish for him. They labored all night and couldn't get any, and he tells them to try the other side. Miraculously, they fill their net, and they come on shore, and he already has fish. And bread being prepared for them for breakfast. It's just a wonderful picture of his love and provision. And Jesus said to them, verse 10, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus invites them to join him, to eat a meal with him. That must have been the most wonderful invitation. I imagine joy in gathering around the fire and the food. And it says that no one dared ask him who he was. They knew. That doesn't mean they had no doubts. We know from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which comes after this, that some doubted. Again, I want to impress on our minds, these are human beings, just like you and me. If you saw someone die the way that Jesus died, And then he appeared in a room where you were standing and the door was locked. 
and he's just there, you're probably thinking ghost before flesh. You're just, you're going to struggle a little bit with, he's back. (laughs) You're going to struggle with that. That's, it's normal that it says that they had doubts. And here's Jesus with them, and Jesus took the bread and he gave it to them, and also the fish, it says. And they have this feast, this meal together. Verse 14 says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The third time that Jesus was revealed. Again, I would ask, what was Jesus up to? What is he doing during these weeks that we don't have any account of? Well, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I truly wonder about that. What were those circumstances like? We have some of the accounts. But what were they like? He appears to James. A conversation with his brother. Imagine that. It's his brother. What what must that have been like? What was said? And what about his mom? What about Mary? There had to be, right? There had to be an encounter with his mom. Time with his earthly mother, but we have no record of it. We don't have any account of it. And it, all, it just reminds me of what John writes at the end of this chapter, at the end of his gospel account in verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's phenomenal. That's Jesus. Of all of the things that we have, and we're astounded, we're amazed at what we read and what we take in and what we imagine and what what is said about Jesus and His love and His compassion and His miracles and His power and His authority over all things. John says, that's nothing. There's so many other things, so many conversations so many miracles, so much love, that if all of it was written down, every single account, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. That is wonderful. Verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This is certainly an emotional and a wonderful text. And I want to say, I don't at all think that Peter is downplaying this with his responses. There are some who interpret this and believe and teach that Jesus is, is saying, uh, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love agape me? And agape being the highest form of love in the Greek language. And Peter is responding Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I, you know I have this friendship love for you. And, and those are the words that are used there. But I don't at all think that that is Peter giving sort of a yes, yes, I love you as a friend, downplaying what the Lord is saying. I don't think that's happening. In fact, if you look through the Gospel of John, John uses these words for love interchangeably throughout his entire book. So what's What's happening with this exchange, with Jesus asking three times, again and again and again, the same question of Peter? It could be that in, in his asking at the beginning, do you love me more than these, that he's asking of concerning the fish, he's asking concerning the apostles, the disciples. But I don't think it's because Peter isn't answering deeply enough that he asks again and then again. I think this is restoration. We don't know what Jesus is doing during these weeks and all of the things that must have been happening when we don't have account of him being with the apostles. But we know what he's been doing ever since. Restoring forgiving. You remember, three times Peter denied the Lord. Three times. And now three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. He affirms his love for Jesus. And each time Jesus responds with, if you love me, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. This is restoration. Jesus doesn't shame Peter. He clarifies and restores Peter's love and his commission. Jesus had made this declaration before, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church a church filled with what sheep and jesus is saying here i haven't changed my plan peter i need you to feed and love my sheep i'm still going the same direction because he is a god of mercy and grace. 
A God that is not dependent on what you do, but on what Christ has done. And so it continues with verses 18 and 19, still Jesus speaking to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now this is hard. Church tradition teaches that Peter was crucified, but that he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the way that his Lord was crucified, and so he was crucified upside down. Crucifixion is what Jesus is referring to here in these two verses. You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now notice there are two, I think, important things that Jesus and John mention here. First, John notes that after Jesus' statement that he said it to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. By what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Those who suffer for Christ and are killed for Jesus' name, they glorify God in their death. Many have gone this way. And John reminds us, it is for His glory and fame. That's why Peter can write the way he does in his letter of 1 Peter. If you're not familiar with it, read it. It is a wonderful, hopeful reminder of God's worthiness of our suffering. Those who suffer for Christ glorify God. But Jesus also says something about it. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's a reminder of Peter's humanity here and ours. The fact that it is glorifying to God and even that he ordains that some die this way doesn't mean that we're Christian masochists. We don't go around looking to die. In fact, Jesus seems to say that Peter would not want to. He's going to take you where you don't want to go, which makes sense because he's a human and you're human. And our aim in following Christ is that Christ would be honored and glorified through our lives, that we would live in light of resurrection, that we would live a life of restoration. That's the goal. Not that we put extra things on to where we're going to go and have this done to us. No, no, no. Our aim is to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. And His words for us may be His words for Peter, and they may be His words for John, which are not the same. But what is our aim what is our purpose in living in light, of res- in, in light of resurrection? Is our aim 
to accomplish great things for Christ or is our aim to please and honor Jesus Christ and let Him bring glory to Himself however He sees fit? Peter's words are so good for us. In 1 Peter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Be ready and live for His honor and glory. Jumping ahead, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is the same man who sat on the shore with Jesus, eating with Him there. Is that our mindset? That we would honor and glorify Jesus. Is that our aim? Jesus says after this, follow me, no matter what. Follow me. It's amazing that Jesus tells him in advance, this is what's going to happen to you. Now follow me. In this passage, following Jesus looks like mundanely getting breakfast with your Savior. Sitting and fellowshipping with Jesus. It looks like purposeful restoration between Peter and Jesus. And it looks like doing life to the very end, which for some is death and martyrdom. Follow Jesus. In light of the resurrection, know that there is reconciliation and follow Jesus. In the mundane and in the busy and in all of life, follow Jesus. After this, they find themselves, the disciples find themselves in Jerusalem and they encounter Jesus again. And Peter is probably never going to be a fisherman by trade again. That doesn't mean that loving Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, that the resurrected life always means we surrender our careers. It just means to follow. Follow Jesus. And for Peter, that's what he does. His life is radically different moving forward. What is our aim? If we believe that Christ is raised from the dead, what is our aim? Let your aim be to honor and glorify God in all of your life. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. I think of the fellowship on that shore that they broke bread together and the joy that there must have been. I'm always reminded in the taking of the Lord's Supper together of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10. And often as we drink the cup, we, it's a participation with the blood of Christ and the bread that we break, it's a participation in the body of Christ. And that 
participation, that word literally means fellowship. It's a fellowship. I would remind you, if you're here and and you don't know Christ, then, then that fellowship is legitimately impossible. Apart from a relationship with God through Christ, fellowship is impossible. And so my encouragement to you is don't, don't take the symbols today. Just let, let that time go by and, and, and let your aim and your purpose in the time that, that we're taking the bread and the cup together, let that be focusing on who Jesus is and partaking of him and considering surrendering your, surrendering your life to Christ to follow him the rest of your days. But if you know him, if you love him, you'll be dismissed as we're singing together to come and receive the bread, receive the cup, go back to your seats, and then we'll take it together. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Lord, I'm amazed at this encounter with Peter. I, I cannot even imagine him seeing you after his denial of you. I can't imagine the guilt that he carried day in and day out for those weeks. I praise you, Lord, that you're so gracious, that you invited him in, that you sat with him, that you loved him, you forgave him, that you restored him, that you sent him to speak of you, to live for you. Pray that you'd be glorified in doing that for us. Even in this time where we're going to sit, we're going to feast, taking the bread and taking the cup together as a body and proclaiming we believe, Lord, that you died and you were raised. Would you in this time work in hearts to restore and to send? That you be glorified through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.